Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Uri Labine, the co-founder of the navigation app Waze. And I got to tell you, he is quite the entrepreneur. Get this. He's built not one, but two companies that have reached a valuation of $1 billion without going public. Now that's some rarefied air. I mean, this guy is just passionate about using technology to solve real-world problems that actually make people's lives better. And he knows exactly what it takes to do it. But for all his success, what strikes me most about Uri is that he's just not afraid to fail. Because let's face it, in business, things don't always go according to plan. But if we can learn to see failure as a valuable experience and then use it to our advantage, we can achieve amazing things. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Uri Levine. You know, Uri, I understand you're a duocorn. What the heck is a duocorn and how do you become one? So, you know, I recently read that there are about um, 62 people that actually have built um, two companies that are worth more than a billion dollars. And, uh, um, and I'm happy to be one of those. And, and by the way, I never rest, right? So there will be more of that. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and this is absolutely amazing to belong to this uh, category of people that have uh, created so much value. And for me, um, it's always about value creation. But but I think that I've sort of developed a method of building startups or building companies that um, doesn't guarantee that you're going to be successful, but increase the likelihood of being successful. As the co-founder of Waze, you've had customers tell you that you set them free. You've even been called the Moses of highways. What's your favorite story, Uri, from a user that you like to tell and why? One of the best stories that I really like is that a few years back, someone came to me and said, thank you, you saved my marriage. And I said, what? Then, well, because of ways, we don't argue anymore in the car, so you saved my marriage. So <laughs> I ended up to be a marriage consultant in that sense. But I think that there, I owe the best story to uh, to my son. I have five kids, and one of them today is uh, you know 24 years old and running his own business and so forth. But uh, But when he started to drive, he really liked to drive. He would drive anywhere, right? And so one day I asked him to drive me to the airport and said, uh, Dad, my phone is broken. I can't. And I said, okay, what do you mean you can't? The car is right there and the keys are right here. Drive me to the airport, right? And he said, no, 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 Dad, you don't get it. My phone is broken. I don't know how to get there, right? And so I was uh, scratching my head for a second. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to be in the car with you and I'll tell you how to get there. And then he asked me, and how would I come back? <laughs> so I think that we, we lose orientation, but not logic. You know, Yuri, I want really want to dive deep into to how you lead and how you build startups. And, and I want to start by asking a question that people have asked me, you know, as, as I've mentioned to them that I'd be interviewing you in, in, in this podcast. And they said, how in the world did this guy build ways to begin with? And this is an app that you build from scratch. How did you build it? There are two things here. One is um, is where it's coming from, right? And the idea, and, and, and for me, always it's about being frustrated from something will trigger me to think whether or not I can change that, right? And, and 
And I hate traffic jams, right? It's really frustrating. And the realizations was somewhere in 2006 is that if there is someone ahead of me on the road, then that someone can tell me how is traffic like uh, on their path. And based on that, if I would have a lot of those, then I can actually figure out what is the fastest route and, and essentially outsmart traffic. And it was only until 2007 when I met the other co-founders of Waze that this idea actually started to um, become real because Ehud um, Shattai, the CTO of Waze, actually have figured out a way to crowdsource the map data, which is even more complex. And so, and, and this is the magic of Waze. Waze crowdsource everything. Not just traffic information and speed traps, which is kind of obvious, right? But the map data itself. So when we started, there was uh, no map. There was a blank page, right? There was absolutely nothing on that blank page. And when the first driver drove, we gathered the GPS data from the device. And if we take this GPS data and draw that on the blank page, then we kind of trace back the route that they drove, right? So all the turns and all the directions that they went and so forth. You start to take that from a lot of drivers and you end up with something that looks like a map. And, and it is actually the way that people are using the roadways. Now, by itself, is incomplete. And then we enabled map editing tools that people can provide us with street names and house numbers and so forth. So the real magic of ways is that we crowdsource everything and based on that, we were able to go globally from pretty much the first day. Not, not that it worked on the first day, but that was the concept, right? And so the promise was, we are going to help drivers to avoid traffic jams. This is really important to remember, right? Because we will go back into the, um, you know, what my t-shirt says and the name of the book, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. One of the important part of focusing on the problem is that uh, your story is way easier to be told, right? Helping drivers to avoid traffic jams, you already like that, right? If I will tell you that I'm building an AI-based crowdsource navigation system, then you don't really care. And so we started with this promise. It was not good enough. It was a long journey to make it good enough, but eventually it was. And then it uh, became the driving application for most of the drivers, or there are more drivers driving with ways on the planet than any other application. Absolutely, and I hate those dry, I hate those traffic jams as well. So, so thank you very much. And I understand how it could keep a lot of marriages uh, together as well. I think that's a source of many arguments that I've had over over the years. You know, I love the title of your book. You know, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Why should that be the approach for leaders? So, so I will start with the end, right? If you solve a problem, it's guaranteed that you are creating value. Now, in particular, if you are starting a new journey, then you are seeking for value creation. And the problem is the easiest way to do that. And for a second, I would say there, there are probably three reasons to do that. One is, as we mentioned earlier, is the story is way easier to be told, right? And that makes your marketing easier. That makes your customer acquisition easier. That makes your... Uh, raising capital is easier. An easier story to be told is, is significant. But the, the most important part is the problem remains the North Star of your journey. And when you have a North Star, then the deviations that you're going to make are going to be shorter and, and shorter in time, shorter in duration. It's easier to keep the focus um, and execute the plan uh, when you have a North Star. And that that is really pretty significant. There is another part of it, which is the mission 
that combines the, the company and all the people that sign up for this mission, whether or not they are the employees or the customers or everyone, they want you to be successful because you are going to make the world a better place by eliminating that problem. And you end up with uh, three key factors that increase the likelihood of being successful. Uri, you know, how do you know whether a problem is one you should pursue? And give us a couple examples if you could. I will start by saying, you know, when, when you think of a problem, I really want you to think of a big problem, something that it's worth solving, something that the world will become a better place if you solve that. And then ask yourself perhaps the most important question, who has this problem? Now, if you happen to be the only person on the planet with this problem, then I would say, uh, go to a shrink. It's going to be way <laughs> cheaper than, than building a startup, right? But if a lot of people actually have this problem, then what you really want to do is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of the problem and only then go and build a solution. Now, there are two things that are, are going to happen, right? If you follow this path and your solution works, it's guaranteed that you're creating value. But there is even more significant part of it. When you tell people that you are going to address this problem and you ask them what do they think about this problem, you kind of sign up for a mission, right? Because they will send you, if the problem is, is really, if they perceive this problem is significant for them, they will sign you up to go and solve that. And this is part of falling in love with the problem, right? You end up with, uh, this is my mission now, right? There are so many people that I spoke with, they told me that, please do that for me, right? And, and this is certainly a place that you would like to be. And so you end up with... Uh, um, really starting with the problem, understanding the perception of the problem, and only then go and build a solution. But there is uh, more into it in, in when you start to address problems. When you tell someone what is likely to happen is that you are going to get examples that you were unable to even figure out by yourself. Um, and so um, I'll give you some examples, right? So, so ways we understand, move it, we... Uh, it's ways for public transportation right now. With public transportation, the challenges are even more significant because with ways, if you left your house five minutes earlier or later, it's not a big deal, right? But if you miss the train, it's a big deal, right? You need a completely different route to get to your destination. And so all of a sudden, the, the information there is becoming even more critical for, for becoming effective. And at the end of the day, there are billion drivers around the globe, and there are 5 billion people using public transportation. So it's a bigger problem to be solved. Some of the other startups that I've started, um, each one of them is, is you know, dealing with a, a single problem. Some examples uh, um, refund it. When you travel to Europe, you're entitled to get the VAT back on the goods that you buy, right? And, and this could be about 20%, right? Now, when you try to do that, it simply doesn't work. There are always bad things happen, right? So maybe long lines at the custom, maybe the stores don't have the right forms. Maybe you get there and they tell you, of course, we have tax-free shopping. It's in a different terminal, right? Something bad happens there. And you, you look at it and you say, wait a minute, there's like 30 billion euros left on the table because it's complex. And what if we can simplify that, right? And so that was the essence for refunded. Yeah, I love how you solve these problems, Uri. And I love how each problem really makes the world a better place and really helps people, which I, I think is, is fantastic. How do you personally get into the heads of customers and understand their perceptions and their beliefs? 
I start with the closest circle of friends, right? So I ask them and then I get the initial feedback. And by, and by the way, when you tell someone, this is what I'm going to build, the first reaction is always going to be the same. This will never work, right? And, and this is uh, really the case. And these are the nice guys, right? The, the lesser, nicer guys, they will tell you, this is the stupidest idea that I ever heard, right? But, but then you go and, and you don't speak about what you're going to build. You speak about the problem. They will show you how significant this problem is for them. And if it's not, then don't even bother. If it is, then here is your mission. Hey, you know, because you're listening to this, I can tell you're the kind of person who wants to learn how to lead well. But there's a lot of companies out there who want to take that desire and charge you $500 or $1,000 or heck, even $20,000 to try and show you how to lead. That's just not right. If you want to be a better leader, I believe you deserve to have access to something that will truly help you, and it shouldn't cost a fortune. So I want you to go to howleaderslead.com and start my leadership class. It's really and truly free. And after you take this class, you're going to feel more confident in your role and you'll be on your way to getting big things done with your team. Go check it out at howleaderslead.com. You know, I understand that you set out the objective for, for ways to be the best workplace ever. You know, what inspired you to, to have this bold goal and what does that really mean to you? I mean, when you said best workplace ever, how did you define what that would be and, and what's it mean? So I think that the trigger came from a few friends that uh, started their startup in 1999, a startup called Human Click. No one heard of that. And they were acquired by Live Person in year 2000, right? And in 2007, when we started Waze, I actually uh, asked them uh, um, their perspectives on building startups and building teams and so forth. And one of the things that I asked them is that, look, most of the entrepreneurs, when their company is being acquired, they sign up for two or three or four years, whatever it is. And usually the first period, they're trying to make the integration work. And then the middle period, they are trying to uh, find someone to replace them. And then the, the last period, they're looking for starting to think of their next startup, right? And you have stayed seven years. Why? And they said, that was the best working place we ever had. And, and we took that in 2007, decided that this is what we're going to build that place. And, and we asked ourselves, what does it mean to us, right? And so you looked at previous positions that you had and previous places that you were, and you said, I like this, I didn't like this. What is it that you like there? What made that place special? And, and that was about leadership, that was about priorities, that's about, um, you know, how we do things, right? And so, for example, you know, at Waze, we decided that we as founders are always going to vote as one vote, right? So if we, uh, we were three, if, if two of us wants to do something, then the third person is going to do the thing, regardless, right? And, and that was uh, established a stronger bonding throughout the entire journey. We say that we are for the drivers, by the drivers, for the drivers, right? Which basically means that we are never going to take advantage of the drivers, right? So we don't sell them insurance. We don't, we don't even keep, the, or at least back then, right, because I left later. We didn't keep any personal information of the drivers. So even if I will get the subpoenas from the court to, to tell the court where exactly you were last night, I don't know. 
because we didn't want to be in a situation. We say this is our priority. Drivers is our priorities. We put employees as the number one importance amongst everything. And the result is that all the employees in the company have stock options, right? And so at the day of the exit, 75% of them became millionaires overnight. Fantastic. <laughs> and I'm so proud of that, right? That actually was the only thing that made me cry is the, the joy of helping all those people that were part of the journey. They were a critical part of the journey. The company wouldn't become what it is without them. And, and all of them were rewarded. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, as a leader, you know, you have to hire people, you have to fire people. What's the most important advice you can give on on that front? So, you know, it, it's funny. There is a chapter in my book that called Firing and Hiring. And when I first submitted that to the, to the publisher, he said it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no, 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 this is firing and hiring. Firing is a hard decision. Hiring is an easy decision. Making hard decisions is hard. And this is why it should be the first and the most important realization how to do that. And, you know, I look at it today and I read this chapter again, and uh, I think that this is maybe uh, one of the most important chapters in my book. And, and one of the reasons is that, uh, you know, I spoke with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed and I asked them why, what happened? And about half say the team was not right. And I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? And so I heard... This guy was not good enough. This guy, so not good enough was a major reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had uh, communication issues. Now, this is a startup with very few people, right? Communication issues there means ego management issues, right? But then I asked them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? Now, all of them knew within the first month. All of them knew within the first month. There was one guy that told me before we even started. Then you said, Wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making hard decisions is hard. Making easy decisions is easy. This is why in small organizations, most of the decisions will go to the top, to the CEO or to the department manager or whatever it is. Now, here is the challenge, right? In particular, when it comes to people, if there is someone that shouldn't be there, someone that doesn't fit, and it doesn't matter if that someone doesn't fit because of poor performance or because of um, different culture, that someone doesn't fit, right? Everyone knows. Everyone knows, and the CEO doesn't do anything. And this is where it's becoming a problem because the result is that the top performing people would leave. Now, one of the things that I've, I've realized is that, wait a minute, if everyone knows and everyone knows within one month, then every hiring manager in the world should do exactly the same. Once you hire a new, a new person, mark your calendar for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer no, then fire them immediately. You're doing yourself a favor. You're doing the rest of the team a favor, and you are doing that person a favor because that person is not going to be successful. Do you have any questions you ask yourself beyond beyond that 30-day question, which I, I love? I think that's a fantastic question to ask. Any other questions you have when you assess people? So, so this is really critical, right? Because we realize that the uh, um, you know, best hiring manager in the world, they are probably going to... Um, 
be at 80% uh, um, good hires and 20% not good hires, right? And so even those that are going to make mistakes and therefore the, the practice of firing immediately someone that shouldn't be there, this practice is really important. But what do you do if you, if you don't know? Right? What do you do if you have a large team of people or you haven't implemented this practice? So, so obviously there are some hires that shouldn't be there, but they're already there for a long period of time. Go back to the basic, right? The biggest issue is that everyone knows. Now, if everyone knows, then ask them. Go and ask some of the of your key performance. Um, um, you know, very simple question. You can ask them directly. Who shouldn't be here? You can ask them indirectly and saying, okay, let's say that we are going to build a new team, and you can choose someone to join you on this team, right? And those are people that needs to be promoted, right? Or you can choose people that you don't want on your team. And if you're going to get consistent answers about uh, specific uh, people, that's exactly what you're looking for. Now, here's the issue with doing that, right? If you ask them, you cannot ignore their answers anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and now, in addition to getting your DNA right early on, you talk about the importance of figuring out what your product market fit is. How do you define product market fit? And when did you know you had it at, at Waze, for example? So when you are building a startups, and, and this is really major difference between a startup and an existing business, right? Existing business, they know what their product is. They know how to acquire users. They know what's their business model. So essentially, they are pretty much in, in a safe place in terms of uncertainty, and they still need to execute well and they want to grow maybe faster and they maybe want to capture additional markets and, and maybe build a new product. But at the end of the day, the answers to the three key questions, what is my value proposition? Uh, how do I bring users or customers and how do I make money? You already answered them. With a startup, when you start from scratch, you don't know all those you're basically saying, okay, I'm going to help drivers to avoid traffic jams. So here is my value proposition, but now you need to build it into the product, right? So the story is there. The product, it's a long journey. Out of all those journeys of figuring out product market fit, figuring out business model and figuring out growth, the product market fit is always going to be the first one. You have to figure out product market fit or you will die. As simple as that. And by figuring out product market fit, what I really mean is that you create value to your customers. If you don't create value, then there is no reason for your existence, right? Now, here is the main thing. And there are two things that I want you to think of. You never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit. They simply died. That's it. Those that did, they don't change their product anymore. So for a second, I want you to think of you know, everything that you're using every day, right? So, so Waze and searching Google and, uh, um, and Uber and Netflix and whatever it is, right? And ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those that I'm using today and the first time that you've used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We are using Waze today the same way. We are using Uber today the same way. So once you figure out product market fit, which is the value that you bring to your customers, you don't change that anymore. You're doing a lot of other things, but you don't change that anymore. It does take a long period of time, a really long period of time, right? It was uh, 
five years for Microsoft. It was 10 years for Netflix. It was three and a half years for Waze. It's always a matter of years to figure that out. And by the way, there is one metric that measures that. Retention. That's it. If people are coming back, that means that you have created value for them. One of the things that I love about the research I've done with you is you're, you're a very provocative thinker and you frame things very uniquely that get you to think. And, and one of your provocative ideas is launch before your product is ready. Now, most people think, you know, I got to get it just perfect. I don't want to get it out there and have it fail because it's not the way how it should be. What's your thinking? Why in the world would you launch something before it's ready? So here is the most interesting part. At the end of the day, it's going to be a journey of failures, right? So, so you are going to make mistakes throughout this journey, left and right, and, and, you know, multiple mistakes. And there are two conclusions of that, if you realize that this is going to be a journey of failure. The first one is that if you're afraid to fail, then in reality, you already failed because you're not going to try. But even if you decide that you are not afraid to fail and you go into this journey, the faster that you fail you essentially increase the likelihood of being successful because you have enough time and resources and funding for another attempt and another try and another experiment and so forth. When it comes to product market fit, the only way that you can improve is if you watch your customers and speak to them. And the only way to do that, if you really want to improve, is to start early. So the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. You don't need to be perfect in order to win the market. You need to be good enough. I want you for a second to imagine two twin companies, right? They born the same day. They are doing exactly the same. And at a certain point of time, the product is not ready yet, right? One of them is saying, you know what? I'm going to launch the product even though that it's not ready. And the other one is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to keep on improving that and fine tune and tuning until it's become perfect. And only then I would launch. What will happen the next phase is that the first company have inputs from real users. And therefore, their improvement is focused on what is really important for the customers. And they will actually become way faster than than the second company and eventually will win the market. And so in that sense, I would say, look, launch way before you think it's ready. As soon as you can actually demonstrate any value to your customers, it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't even need to be good enough. But what you really want is the initial feedback. And the initial feedback, when you listen to it, is the one that is going to make you more successful. You know, and people will tell me, but wait a minute, this is crappy product. This is, you know, I'm embarrassed to launch that. Then I will tell them, good, this is exactly the right timing. Now, if they will tell me, but we are going to hurt our brand name, then I will tell them, what brand name? You don't even have a customer. So you don't even have a brand name. So why should you worry about something that you don't even have? I'm going to lose customers. Of course you do. But you're going to lose customers that are going to improve the product in order for the next set of customers for the product to become better and better and better. And in that way, they will come back. Now, they will come back because essentially the first users that you're going to have are probably um, the most innovative people. They, They care about what you're doing. And they care to the level that they they might be enthusiastic amateurs, that they really care about what you're doing. And they will be forgiving. Absolutely. And, you know, you wear these T-shirts and I love them. And the one you have on right now says, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, the title of your book. But you also have another one that I've seen in videos, which is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
That's a great phrase. How do you operationalize that at a company like Waze? You know, you, you operationalize that by setting the most important thing. And the most important thing is going to change multiple times. But right now, this is about product. Right now, this is about this area of the product. Right now, this is about raising capital. Right now, it's about something else, right? And you basically align that objective, the most important thing, with everyone in the company, right? So everyone knows what is really important. Now, at the end of the day, focus focus is really challenging, right? Because uh, the general sense is that we can do everything, right? But the reality is that we can't. We don't need to do everything. We need to do one thing, right? And so focus is not about what we are doing. It's about what we are not doing. These are the hard decisions, right? So ways is for... Daily commuters, that's it, right? It's not for pedestrians, it's not for truck drivers, it's not for bicycle riders, it's not for anything else except the daily commuters. And when you focus on a single task, then it's easier to make it more successful. And this is where I mentioned earlier, the problem you're trying to solve is the North Star of your journey. And when you have the North Star, then you have less deviations from the, from the main route. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Uri Levine in just a moment. You know, I just love talking to entrepreneurs like Uri and understanding what makes them tick. But I got to admit, when it comes to really understanding the startup mindset, nobody does it better than Guy Raz. He hosts the popular NPR podcast, How I Built This, and interviews top entrepreneurs from all walks of life. I got the chance to interview Guy, and it's clear he puts a high priority on how he can serve other people. And if you ask me, that's the hallmark of an extraordinary leader. At its core, at its heart, what I'm doing is trying to serve the people who don't have access to the founders I have access to. But I take that responsibility very seriously because I think about somebody who's got a small brick and mortar store, who's trying to figure out how to create a second location or somebody who's running a shop on Etsy and thinking about how to scale or expand. And I think about what I do as a free business school course for them, you know, a service that is free that will hopefully give them information that is useful. And so to me, I really do think about what I do in service of others. And it actually, that's what drives me. I get jazzed about that. You know, I love that. Go back and listen to my entire conversation with Guy Raz, episode 94, here on How Leaders Lead. You're a a charismatic guy. You got a big smile, yet you describe yourself as a troublemaking guy. Why do you feel that way about yourself? So, so number one, I would say I was fired from any working place that I ever was, right? I was kicked out of from any class that I ever was. But you mentioned earlier, I have a provocative thinking, right? I don't accept anything for granted. And this is very challenging, right? And in particular, in my approach, when I get things that are frustrating me, I don't accept the fact that this is how it is. And I basically say, wait a minute, let, let, me, let me figure that out here. And so I ended up to be, in that sense, a troublemaker. And, and by the way, one of the biggest challenges of corporates is that they have a hard time to innovate. Part of it is because they got rid of the troublemakers. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. You know, Yuri, this has been so much fun, and I want to have some more with my lightning round of Q&A. Are, are you ready for this? Of course. What's one word others would use to best describe you? Passionate. 
What would you say is the one word that best describes you? Value creator. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? Um, Thomas Edison. Because of the perseverance in trying to solve something that he was really set up as a mission for himself. What's your biggest pet peeve? Bullshit. <laughs> What's the one app on your phone you couldn't live without? Ways. <laughs> uh, what's something about Israel that you'd only know if you were Israeli? So, so Israel is very unique, but the fact that we all are having a mandatory military service over a three years period actually makes us um, very powerful in that sense. And, and the commitment that soldiers will have to each other um, is stronger than any other commitment between people that I know. What would I hear if I got in your car and turned on the radio? I usually don't listen to the radio. Nothing. Silence. So you can think of the next big idea. What's something about you that few people would know? If there are only few people that knows that, then I prefer to keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Biggest lesson you learned from your mother? Being a teacher. Biggest lesson you learned from your dad? Don't be afraid to fail. That's the end of the lightning round, and uh, but I, I got a couple more questions, and I'll I'll let you go here. Or I got to ask you this: you know, you're a disruptor. You disrupt categories. You know, you you really I know admire other other companies that go into categories and make life better for others by disrupting what's the current way of doing things. What what keeps existing companies and leaders from changing, and as a result, they end up getting disrupted. So, you know, for a second, I would say, let's define disruption as um, change in the market equilibrium, right? And, and this change is, uh, is pretty dramatic, right? It means multiple things. Um, one of them is that the new equilibrium is way better than the previous one, which basically means that the market is going to be way bigger than before. And in a new, bigger market, there is multiple room for multiple players, right? And let's just take Uber, for example, right? So, so you think of the number of on-demand trips that were there before Uber with medallion taxes, with standard taxes, and the market today, and the market today is more than 10 times bigger. And in this 10 times bigger, there's room for Uber and Lyft and 99 Taxi and Grab and Didi, and there is three times bigger room for taxi drivers. So the opportunity is way bigger than the threat. And this is one thing that we all need to remember. The challenge is that you look at the history and you basically say all the disruptors are newcomers. Existing business do not disrupt their own business because they have something to lose and newcomers have nothing to lose. Now, there are different ways that you can address that, but the underlying assumption needs to be that we cannot disrupt our own market. And by the time we will say, wait a minute, our market is nearly over or it's going to change, it might be too late. There are three reasons for that. One is the ego management, right? If you, if you want to disrupt, you need to start by a statement saying, whatever we are currently doing is wrong. Now, I can do that when I'm alone in the room and there is no one else in the room and I can tell myself I'm wrong. But try to do that in a corporate throughout management meeting. It's not going to work. The one that will raise the voice and say whatever we are currently doing is wrong is a troublemaker. So the first part is about ego management. The second part is about fear of failures. Corporates have established over the years high fear of failure, and therefore people are afraid to try new things. 
And the result is that they are incapable of doing that. Now, here comes the most complex part of it. Building a startup is a long journey. And it usually takes companies, when they start, 10 years to get to the place that they are starting to create significant value. And in these 10 years, they figure out product market fit, and they figure out growth, and they figure out business model and so forth. And then they are actually on the takeoff runway. And when you think of a corporate that is basically saying, you know what, I think that I need to create something new. I think that I need to disrupt this market. I'm going to build a a new division that is going to deal with that. This new division over the next decade is going to struggle, right? And in particular, someday during the next decade, we will have, you know, challenges periods of, of for the corporate and the board will say, you know, this division that is bleeding cash, why don't we shut it down? And therefore, the only way for corporates to innovate efficiently is actually to invest and to invest in something that will make them irrelevant. So every corporate needs to ask themselves one question every year, right? What will make me irrelevant? What if this happens? My market is disappearing, is, is not going to be, remain the same. So, um, so that might be digital camera for Kodak. That might be Netflix for Blockbuster. That might be the smartphones for the digital cameras. And if you can answer that, if you can basically say, you know what? In five years or in 10 years down the road, if this happens, I have no job for my corporate, then you should invest in doing that. And you should either spin off or invest in a company that is doing that because you will not be able to carry that by yourself throughout the entire journey. You know, one of the things that you are is you're a great storyteller. And what do you think makes a great story? And would you mind sharing, you know, what you think is one of the most powerful stories you ever told to really get you where you needed to go next. Something that is really important about telling a story. Story is not about facts. It's about creating emotional engagement. You can make people laugh. You can make people want to be part of the story. You can make people, you know, develop very strong emotional engagement with the story. When you're doing that, then people actually sign up. And they will sign up as customers, they will sign up as users, they will sign up as employees, they will sign up as investors because they want to be part of it. And so telling a good story is great, critical. Um, for investors, I would say the other part of the story is that they need to, to get convinced that you can deliver. And what was the best way you did to, to do that? When we started Waze, um, this is uh, 2007, I was... Uh, 42 years old with, uh, um, with you know, quite of uh, success stories throughout my career. So that by itself sent a, um, a pretty powerful message. But I think that the fundraising for Waze, the initial fundraising for Waze was uh, one of the most amazing stories, right? And, you know, we met a lot of investors and, and pretty much everyone said no. I mean, the, there was one guy that told me, uh, you know what, this is interesting. And we had more conversations and, uh, and they started to believe. And then they said, okay, we need to do, you know, all partners meeting um, and you need to come and present them. And we already had a demo running on a PDA or maybe more than a demo, but an app running on a PDA. And, and we realized that the biggest issue for people to capture is that the crowdsource can create the map. And so what we did before the meeting, I asked the guy that was guiding us throughout this journey is, uh, um, Give me the home addresses of all the partners of this fund. And we made sure that the, these uh, houses are on the map and on each and every street, there are a few more houses on the map. 
And, you know, sure enough, when we explain that the crowdsource of the map, the managing partner asks suddenly, so what you're telling me is that is possible that my house is on the map? And uh, I told him, I don't know where you live, but if you tell me, we can find out, right? And, uh, and I was presenting that on the main screen and obviously <laughs> on the map. And sure enough, he was asked, okay, let, let me see if there are other houses on the map, right? And, and there was a few more houses on the map. And, and that was the moment that it was clear that they're going to invest. <laughs> That's a great story. Uri, how do you make decisions? You know, and I understand your, your father gave you a great bit of advice on this one as well. Yeah. You know, when I was young, one day I approached my dad and I said, look, I have these two alternatives and I don't know which one to choose. And he reached out to his pocket and get a coin out and said, I'm going to flip the coin. And before the coin drops, you're going to make the call. Right. And so essentially what is really important is that in many cases, we do know what is the right decision, but we are looking for confirmation. Now, if we know what is the right decision and, and for a second, I would call that guts feeling. So let me define guts feeling for you. Guts feeling is basically say, I'm going to take all of my experience and in a swift of a second, I'm going to make the call. And the beauty of that is that if you have experience, most likely your guts feeling is right. Now, if you don't have any experience, then you have no clue, right? And then you don't have a guts feeling. And, and this is really important because at the end of the day, and I, by the way, back to when I was 20s and I choose my path and, uh, um, and I make that call, what is really important to remember is that that was by definition the right decisions because you don't know what it would be like if you will choose a different path. And so when you make a decision, that's the only decision there is. And by definition, it's right decision. And this is really important. Because at the end of the day, and this is Harvard Business Review, um, you know, report on what makes successful CEOs, making decision with conviction is number one. For startup CEOs, I will say there is something else. There is something even more important than that. And this is the grit, the perseverance, right? The attitude of never giving up is even more important than making decision with conviction. Last question. What's one piece of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders? Let me define leadership, right? Leadership is that uh, people would like to follow you. It's not that they have to, they want to. And you create that by serving as a sample yourself. You create that with uh, um, consistency between what you say and what you do. And you create that by making decisions. Because one of the reasons that you are the leader is that in order to make a decision, and you need to make a decision with conviction. And when you do that, then people would follow. And it's perfectly okay to say, okay, this is where we are going. And three months later, say, you know what? We ran into a wall. We are going to go this direction. It's perfectly okay to change direction. It's not okay not to make a decision. You know, Yuri, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to thank you for all the good you're doing in the world. I mean, you're you're motivated for all the right reasons with every startup you have, and uh, you certainly have enriched a lot of people's lives because of your approach and and how you get at it. And I want to thank you for for taking the time to to codify your learnings. You know, I think that that's so important when you have so much to give and you keep it to yourself. I think you're being selfish and you're absolutely the opposite of that. You're a very giving person and it's paying off for you in many different ways. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Well, I gotta say, Uri sure has his pulse on what it takes to build a business that customers find value in and keep coming back to. And I love that he's giving us all permission to embrace uncertainty and get comfortable with failure. If you wanna grow your company or grow as a leader, you can't be afraid to try new things, even though some of those things might not work. Now, of course you wanna do your homework and use sound judgment and all that good stuff, but at some point, You've got to take action, even if you aren't sure. Summon your courage, decide with conviction, and just go for it. And hey, if things don't go as planned, learn your lessons, adjust your approach, and keep moving forward. That's the mark of a successful leader. To apply this idea, I want you to spend some time this week reflecting on your career up to this point. Think about one of your own professional failures. If you're like me, you won't have too much trouble recalling one of them. Ask yourself what happened as a result of that failure. What did you learn? How did the experience bring you to where you are today? The more you understand how your missteps have shaped you, the less likely you are to let a fear of failure keep you from whatever big things might be coming up next for you. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders aren't afraid to fail. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Chris Geisens, president and CEO of Wawa. I learned in that journey what makes me and this organization tick, and it's not cutting. You don't cut your way to success and growth. You need it sometimes, but it's really investing. It's investing in people. It's investing in the communities you serve. And frankly, I think one's measure of success isn't the stock price growth they had as CEO, or it's not the revenue growth. It's the impact they left on the people and the communities they served when they're done. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.